You are this country's first openly gay prime minister. How big a deal is this for you personally? Brexit process. U.S. investment bank Lehman Brothers collapsed. I said this was a once in a generation a vote. financial crisis. But I believe we have voted today for the next generation. Don't be rude. Ireland has spoken with a clear, strong voice. I think I should stop now and start again, because I don't think you this is a good news. start of the debate. Hi, and welcome to the Dublin Law and Politics Review podcast, in which we discuss some of the topical developments around policy and regulation in the world right now. I'm Jess Poon, and my guest today is the author, Sam Byers. Sam is the author of Idiopathy, Perfidious Albion, and has a new novel, Come Join Our Disease, coming in March 2021 from Faber and Faber. I got in touch with Sam because I loved his book, Perfidious Albion, which I started reading when I arrived back in London at the beginning of lockdown. Perfidious Albion has been hailed as a sharp commentary on the media ecosystem, collapsing the boundaries of technology, politics, public relations and the media. The FT calls a darkly plausible vision of the near future. For those that don't know, I'll let Sam introduce the book properly. Perfidious Albion is a book really that came out of watching the rise of um, right-wing politics in Britain in, in the run-up to the uh, the Brexit referendum. Um, and it's it's been... In sort of pitched as a, as a Brexit novel, like I've seen people describe it as a Brexit novel, but I think really it's not so much about Brexit as about uh, the conditions that fostered Brexit and then came out of Brexit. So it follows uh, um, a populist right-wing politicians. He um, manipulates events in a small town to his, to his own advantage. And uh, two other characters whose lives... Um, kind of both intertwine and unravel as a result of their online behaviours. And I suppose what I was trying to sort of pick up was what the sort of emotional tenor of this combination of quite kind of fevered politics and this constant sort of online anxiety and feverishness and the feeling of performance um, and so I decided to kind of set it in a small town rather than in a big city to like heighten that sense of claustrophobia, I suppose. And my thinking was, I suppose, what, what is the relationship between those emerging behaviours? Like, what is the relationship between the rise of right-wing politics, the sort of issues we've had around information and clarity, and also what is that doing to us on a more sort of intimate level? Um, our personal lives I suppose. Do you think you know content producers or anyone who has an opinion really is is meant to be sort of gauging and inciting a sense of critical thinking in the public domain? I suppose all of us you know whether we're producing content or writing or you know have a public platform or not all of us have responsibility to think critically about what we're experiencing what we then put back out there for the people to consume in the sort of phenomenon of the opinion column, you can see where those two things intersect is to scrutinise. And we've probably gone through a time where we suddenly all had uh, like new freedoms to kind of publish our thoughts, express ourselves and communicate. That's, that's all to the good. I'm not kind of digital sceptic. For me, I think that probably is the, the next step. You know, it's for all of us to think about to the impact of what we're putting out you know most of us aren't used to having a public life in yeah. any way shape or form 
And so now we're suddenly in that position where anyone's words can carry weight. We just haven't sort of trained ourselves to behave as if that's the case. You know, you say you're not a digital sceptic, but um, you think the model of disruption that we're currently witnessing is unequal, right? So how do we balance that out in this mm. moment of political accountability? Well, I suppose I'm like very much a, a capitalism sceptic. And I think the danger is that we get sort of distracted by the tools that we have and that, you know, takes attention away from the sort of power structures that lie behind those tools. I mean, something like Twitter or, you know, Facebook, to an extent, that's just the means by which people are communicating. Or, you know, I d I'm not sure that those technologies have any sort of inherent goodness or badness. The problem is who manages those technologies and, you know, who is privileged by those technologies and how people either use those technologies to shore up their existing power or use them as, as a means of sort of creating new power, holding new power. So I am very cynical. And I think that the problem has been less so now, but certainly when I was writing the book, there was an awful lot of focus on technology itself. Like, what about our phones? You know, what about social media? What about the internet? And in a way, I, I think that was something of a, of a misnomer. I think the focus should have been on some of the companies behind some of this technology and what they want to achieve for themselves. Uh, they're being afforded a level of power that we haven't really see, seen anyone have before. And, you know, we've seen this sort of long-standing pushback against Huawei. In the last week or so, we've seen this huge governmental shift in UK politics of, I guess, like seizing accountability. Is this like a real moment for people to demonstrate that they are committed to this greater accountability at sort of state level? I think it, think it remains to be seen. You know, like it's difficult to tell when we're all in lockdown. There have been moments where, like you say, I've thought, well, you know, maybe this is when people kind of turn on Amazon or you know, like the rise of mutual aid groups, like maybe this is when people develop a kind of deeper in-person connection with their communities and the people around them. But equally, you know, even this week, like watching the speed with which it's proposed that lockdown is lifted and shops open again and we kind of return to normal, I think we may come to feel that that gap, that sort of like, interstitial period between kind of what the world was and whatever it's it's going to be is much much smaller than it initially appeared and you know we may not have the the chance to take advantage in quite the way that we thought it might it might actually pass very quickly mm. that's my concern and i mean in terms of the last week i almost like you know the the cummings saga is you know perhaps an example of exactly the way we can get a bit distracted by things that work very well on the internet so like there's, there's a sort of great pleasure to be had in unpicking the coming narrative and, and like watching twitter go to work and take it all to bits and do a sort of fine detail deconstruction of everything that's happened but there's a part of me that feels that you know that pales into insignificance besides like care home deaths or the sheer rate of infection we experienced in this country or the delay into lockdown, like things that genuinely probably cost thousands of lives. And so I, I feel like, in a way, I feel that the, the internet somehow kind of encourages this focus on the detail sometimes at the expense of 
a kind of bigger picture view. Would you say that we're complicit in this sort of media ecosystem? Yeah, yeah, because both, you know, we're all now both consumers and producers. You know, a bit like we were talking talking about before. So this sense of responsibility that, you know, we might say applies to what we put out there. It also applies to what we consume and what we inflate through sharing. And so I think the danger is that we all become kind of a part of the process of our own distraction uh, through through what we share, through what we use to inflate. Um, and because for each one of us, that's a very, very small action, like a retweet, it becomes, it becomes difficult to see the scale of what that creates when we all do it together. Like I still think we're sort of reckoning with that. So every single one of us could say, well, it doesn't really matter if I, if I link to that, like what, what difference does that make? You know, but if thousands upon thousands of people make that same decision, then we are all complicit in in how the narrative unfolds and what people come to feel the the narrative is. And then it becomes very difficult, I think, to sort of push against that because things develop their own kind of gravity. Um that you know, then it becomes quite a difficult process to move away from it or sort of gently interrogate it. Um, and yeah, I, I do think that goes back to all of our individual behaviours. And again, it's back to that thing of, you know, we're just not, we're just not used to it. We still think of ourselves, I think, purely as kind of passive consumers. Um, and, and the truth is that we're not. It, like in a very real sense, when I open The Guardian and I see like what the headlines are, several of the headlines come out of what's happening on Twitter. The news is guided in some cases by how social media is talking about something, how social media is reacting to something. So that kind of loop is one all of us have an individual responsibility to try and break sometimes, I think. Because otherwise, we're all kind of creating the conditions that we then have to do the difficult work of getting out of. But, you know, I'm really interested in what you think doesn't change in these like sort of uneven visions of, I guess, tech utopia or the sort of Silicon Valley utopianism that people think we're all sort of moving towards. You know, what will be the last things to change? Well, I don't think in, I don't think we can really say that inequality has changed. You know, like all, all the research I've seen, all the reporting I've seen is that um, that uh, Silicon Valley kind of utopian uh, rhetoric behind that are all the same power structures we had before that it's overwhelmingly male, that it's overwhelmingly white, that it's overwhelmingly privileged people who enter that world and make their way through that world and then succeed in that world. And that it also, you know, and I sort of wanted to address this a bit in the book, that it also privileges uh, power personality, you know, that it's, you know, it's a highly competitive world. It favours a certain kind of individual who, move through it in a certain kind of way and expresses themselves in a certain kind of way. And so I don't think those cultures have done anything to disrupt like existing paradigms of power or existing structures of inequality, even though they had the opportunity to. There's still worlds that are completely fixated on or completely depend upon what will probably turn out to be a sort of broken economic model constant expansion constant inflation constant increase in value constant growth constant competition and so in a way it's it's almost like 
that world is just a sort of hyperinflated version of the world we already had. It's, it's just kind of accelerated capitalism. I don't think, you know, for all this sort of technological advancement, I don't think those cultures have really had any impact on environmental issues either, for example. You know, like the sheer rate of consumption of some of those companies, like the amount of energy that is required to fuel the internet or like been stuff about Bitcoin. So again, we're still trapped in a model of consumption. Thirdly, not convinced at any of these, although these things have superficially changed our behavior in terms of the way we might relate to a product, they've still trapped us in a very sort of consumerist mindset. Like you, you know, tap a phone and something arrives four hours later. Uh, and yet you look at something like the benefit system and it, it seems to me so far from being perfect. You know, it's all the, it's difficult to use. You know, that doesn't seem to have got any easier. And I think that tells us something about where our priorities still are. Priorities haven't, haven't really shifted. Do you think it's a time to sort of slow down reassessing sort of certain policies, especially now that we've mm. seen this pandemic be a model of really drawing out those stark inequalities? Um, this legacy of austerity that has left like so many people profoundly vulnerable. You know, there has to be a way of kind of taking that, which is now you're really evidential that that model of society fundamentally doesn't work for everyone. And using that to build what I would almost describe as like a moral case for an alternative. Think my, my feeling about sort of political discourse over the last couple of years is that it got very, very processy, like particularly through the Brexit stuff. We all got very, very hung up on like, what is the detail of this particular law and like what's parliamentary process and can we do this and can we do that and all of that kind of like wonkiness almost became a way of dismissing more ambiguous more nebulous arguments so it, it became harder in terms of kind of slowing down what values we want our society to be to be based on um now that we've seen that like some of our values are distorted to be honest, and the current basis for that, like the, the current model that we have is extremely harmful. I think there is scope for kind of thinking about that, but to think about that in the terms that we're used to, which is this very sort of like hyper detail political process, you know, you, you would have to somehow create the space for again making moral arguments without them being dismissed as sort of wishy washy or, you know, a bit hippie or, you know, pie in the sky, or utopian, you know, all of that, I think, is a way of stopping us thinking about what it is that we really want. Um, and the other thing that I think has really been revealed to us, which I think will be very difficult to continue to think about, because it's, it's frightening to think for, you know, in the last decade or two, that, you know, our financial systems, our retail system, being able to get the things that we need, being taken care of, uh, our social care system, our health system, they unravel quite easily, actually. You know, they, they've been revealed to be quite shaky. I think that, I hope that something can come out of that sense that we had briefly, that it could all fall apart. It might be the start of a way of thinking about how some of these things could be more robust.
as the world becomes more of a sort of global or globalized and increasingly urban sort of set of systems, because we are such a consumer class, you know, we just take and reach out for whatever's just immediately there, right? And that's so, mm. it's so difficult to break away from. Like what you're saying makes me think not just of the way that we're surveilled, but one of the things I really noticed with like sort of creeping horror as coronavirus break out, broke out was that our willingness to surveil each other you know, to take pictures of each other on YouTube uh, and, and, and post those to social media, like pictures of strangers, like breaking the laws, you know, trying to get the police to, you know, respond to a picture of someone you take in the supermarket. And that to me feels very much like a society on a war footing. You know, that to me feels very much like behaviour about kind of rooting out spies or, you know, like... Um, reporting people who aren't contributing properly to the effort to fight this thing. And I found that extraordinarily sinister, like a, like a real development of our, our own comfort with being surveilled um, in, in, in a really unpleasant way, I thought. And I think the other thing it makes me think of is the way that it's going to be difficult to achieve change. I, I think that's one of the real dangers, like when we're all very frightened and you know, particularly as we come out of lockdown and we're all, you know, forced to kind of engage with each other once again and all probably very uncomfortable and, um, you know, worried about, you know, catching the disease and things like that. There's this instinct to be like, well, the only thing that's going to make us safe is if we're just really, really heavily policed, you know. So, you know, we want a much more visible police presence. We want to see police, like, cracking down on people who contravene the regulations etc etc maybe we do want police presence in supermarkets to make sure everyone's socially distancing and all, all of that and because we associate that kind of authority with safety i think there's a real danger that we put ourselves in that position almost voluntarily like we're, we're asking to be policed we're asking to be surveilled in a really I, th- I, I think the emotions of that are very complicated and I think we have to be careful not to not to ask for something instinctively that we then can't reverse when we're thinking more pragmatically down the line um, because, I, because I think actually the feeling of safety that comes with that kind of close policing and surveillance is, is a real illusion and it's, it's not equally distributed because obviously for other people, particularly in London, the feeling of close policing doesn't feel safe at all. You know, so I think there's a danger that the middle classes demand a level of policing and surveillance that makes them feel safe and makes other people feel terrified. And I don't, you know, I don't think that's the makings of the kind of world that we want to emerge into as we come out of this thing. Do you think that there's like a singular solution or maybe there's like a couple that sort of are small changes that we can make ourselves or you live this sort of online life where you're being watched and you and replicated and endlessly like reproduced even retweeting someone so like a secondary piece of evidence then becomes your opinion we've been kind of inculcated into a culture where opinion is a kind of capital and we we place this incredible significance on you know someone's opinion what they think you know, et cetera, et cetera, and in turn on our opinion, what we think. And that seems to apply to everything from, you know, what someone thinks of a book, what someone thinks of an album, to what someone thinks of the news. And 
I, I think there's very much a place for that. Like there's a place for that kind of discussion. But I feel that particularly in the realm of journalism, you know, it that has come to be very opinion led. And I, I think that's created an atmosphere where kind of everyone's opinion almost. And I think we could do ourselves a favour by reminding ourselves our own opinion is just an opinion and someone else's opinion is just an opinion that opinion in the end doesn't really get us anywhere and you know building a whole media economy around opinion all that really means is that people will tailor their opinions to what will be most rewarding in that opinion economy you know so there are people who've built a whole career just on saying things that make people angry on social media. They, they, you know, they've been able to monetize that, like that has become a life for them. And I think we could remove a lot of the oxygen from that uh, environment by becoming much less interested in opinion. So that's not the same, I think, as kind of removing a whole tier of critical thought. But I think it is the same, you know, I think it equates to almost a kind of like collective ego deflation that we could all be part of you know but to me that 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 seems like the at the moment the root of the problem that we that we've got in the in the discourse and our confusion about news and our confusion about what journalism is you know i think we have to kind of remind ourselves what it means to report on something versus what it means to comment on something cool that's a great note to end on thanks for your time sam for more podcasts, follow us on Spotify and SoundCloud for more content. Comments, questions and suggestions are very welcome via contact at dublinlpr.ie.